Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We spoke earlier today to Mike Young. He's the CEO of Vimy Resources. We discussed their recent fundraise and how they intend to spend that money and what they're doing indeed to cut costs throughout the organization. We also look at uranium fatigue and timing of price discovery in the market. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well. Very warm, actually. Summertime in Perth. Lo lovely to hear that. <laughs> lovely to hear that. Not so much here. I've got my jumper on, as you may have noticed. Um, good to catch up with you before we get into the kind of Christmas break. Um, want to sort of catch up and uh, see what you've been up to since we last spoke in September. We, we spoke at the WNA. You've done a fundraise since you spoke. Tell us about that. Yeah, we did a we did a placement and then we did a share purchase plan, which allows um, basically our shareholders who reside in Australia and New Zealand to to buy up to thirty thousand dollars worth of shares. So the play, they those two together raised four point nine million, which was good and topped up the coffers for us. Um, very happy to report that may, many of our major shareholders uh, backed the placement uh, that came in, and, and we had to actually pair back um, some of the bids. So it was. You know, as we say, oversubscribed and successful, so we're happy with that. And then, uh, while I'm on that subject, uh, we had the AGM, and all the resolutions went through with very high votes. So the shareholders are pretty pretty happy with our strategy now. Yeah, yes, and so I guess that's the the Forest family or Forest Group um, followed the money. You said they would. No, Forest didn't this time. Uh, they come and go. They've been in a couple of times. Um, this time they chose not to, okay. um, they just, and we have discussions with them and we're happy with why they didn't this time. Uh, Paradise followed their money. Mike Alkin uh, followed their money and some high net worth people we have out of Sydney who are very strong, long uranium backers followed their money as well. So, you know, good support all around, but um, the forest guys voted in favor of um, the resolutions, particularly the REM resolution. So our REM, we had one strike against us in Australia. We have a rule that if, uh, more than 25% of people vote against the REM, uh, the, the remuneration um, resolution. Um, if that happens twice in a row, then you get a board spill. So it's always a bit of a risk. So last year we did in fact have one strike against us, but this year with the, the REM passed with about 99% support. So, you know, we've done, we've done some cost cutting measures. We downsized the office. We've gone on to salary sacrifice and some of us are on part-time. So the shareholders are happy now with what we're doing with, uh, with respect to cost, cost okay. mitigation. So what, so what have you done? I mean, it's, it's item number one on the, on the AGM, the adoption of the remuneration report. What recommendations, what recommendations did you make? So basically the REM report is, uh, it's, they're, they're fairly pro forma. Um, but during the year, one of the big things we did was the salary sacrifice that we did for all the senior executives and the board. And that was, that was taken up by most, most of the execs, myself included. Um, and then, uh, as I said before, some of our guys have gone on part-time. So that, 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 uh, got support through the REM vote. So the REM vote is normally used um, by shareholders to, to basically, uh, vote displeasure against remuneration for the company. Right. And this time it, it got a thumbs up. You used the phrase though. You said um, we've salary sacrifice, and we've and some people are going part time. Why not just take less money and continue to work full time? What's the what's the difference between those two options? Um, well, I suppose everyone's got life, uh, you know, homes and debts and kids at school. 
Um, so the idea with salary sacrifice, rather than just taking a pay cut, is that you are basically, uh, it doesn't cost the company in terms of cash. It's not cash going sure. out. Sure. And you're basically buying shares in the company. So it's it's just a way of, of preserving cash. Um, well, I suppose backing the company. Right. So you, they take, people are taking part of their salary or remuneration, sorry, as shares instead of cash. Is that what, you're, is that what you just said? Yeah. And yes, that's right. And and that's that's something shareholders like to see to see the management um, buying shares in the company. And one thing I don't like doing is buying shares in the company I work for on the open market because that means that I'm buying shares from someone who's selling shares and. You know, that's not something I like doing, right? Um, so what we do by doing it this way is that money doesn't go out of the company. So we actually we actually maintain the money in the treasury and then I'm getting paid in paper. So from a cash accounting point of view or a cash flow point of view, there's not cash going out. You know, if you look at it on the balance sheet, well, then there's shares going out. But the, the illusionary effect is very, very small. And the way it works is that at the end of each quarter, we look at a we look at a five year BWAP towards the end of the quarter and that's what we get paid. So, you know, the share price has to go up for us to even break even. So it is a risk for us, but we, you know, we believe in the company. I think that's the other important message is the fact that we are taking part of our salary as shares um, because we believe, you know, right now we're undervalued. Right. Okay. And I guess we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about use of proceeds for the, uh, the placement money in, in a second because Again, that comes back to your strategy, your go forward strategy. But just some of the other things on the AGM, just to sort of clarify for people. So, uh, item number two was a spill resolution. What, what's that refer to? So, what happens if we had had our second strike this year? Then there would have been a resolution to spill. And because they, we didn't get our second strike, we we actually the rim uh, passed with plus seventy five percent of the vote. It was ninety nine point something. That resolution wasn't put to the meeting. Was withdrawn. So that's just a. Uh, uh, there are there are companies who, who've gone to the second motion, and then you have to spill the board, call an a, the EGM, and have another um, have another vote for your board members. You've done a number of share issues this year. Um, you were talking about approval of additional placement capacity, which suggests that there's there will be more next year. Obviously, if you to take this forward, if the market recovers and you are to take this forward, that's just paving the way for that. So that's a relatively simple. Uh, approval was it? Yeah, that's yeah. Well, junior companies uh, who aren't generating cash flow—that's their lifeblood. So rather than having an EGM, an extraordinary general meeting at the time that you place the shares, you can get pre-approval for up to fifteen percent of the of your of your issued capital. So that's what that's a normal resolution for any junior company at any EGM. Okay. So let's let's get on to the placement. Um, as you say, you, you raised money. We, I think when we talked previously, you said you were going to have to. It's a question of you know when, when that was and all those wonderful factors like price in the market and market recovery, etc., come into play there. But you, you've done that at five cents. I'm sure you would wish to have done that at a higher price, but it is it is what it is. So, what was the conversation with shareholders, new and old? To, to say we need to raise this amount of money and this is what we're going to do. I mean, what, what was that conversation like? Well, um, obviously we've had the same conversation before. Um, you know, the shareholders that we do have, uh, we, they're pretty sticky. They believe in the uranium space, um, particularly Paradise, um, Forest, 
you've got Mike Alkin on there, some high net worths, and Sydney Morgans has been very supportive. So all all of the major shareholders, in fact, all of our major shareholders um, are supportive and understand the long nature of the uranium industry. Um, we, like everyone else, would have expected uh, more of a recovery than we're currently seeing, uh, but the thesis is still the same, and the the maths on the supply demand imbalance are still the same. Um, what what we see as investors and what what your viewers see is the spot price, and the spot price is not going to move until we start seeing significant values uh, volumes um, of American utilities, particularly coming into the market into the contract market because that flows through the spot market. Um, and the other thing that's been interesting is just what Cameco has been up to. And it's really difficult to, to get see through on how they're getting uranium stock without affecting the spot price. Because if you do simple maths on, you know, how much volume goes through a spot market in any given year, uh, not including if you correct it for the churn between traders, um, you would have expected that uh, Cameco should have waited in the market uh, in, a, in a, a much bigger way than they have. Um, so there's a lot of questions being asked about where exactly are they getting uranium? And the simple answer is not, people don't know. You know, we've got Scott Hyman who works for us. He used to work for Cameco and, you know, he was a fuel buyer and a fuel seller and, and he, even he's scratching his head a bit as to what Cameco is up to. So that's a really interesting one and, and I haven't got any answers on that one. Yeah, I mean, it's been... The silence has been deafening, I think, is the cliche that springs to mind over the last couple of months since WNA, certainly. You know, fund managers have gone quiet. Cameco's made a few announcements, but it hasn't had the pop. No one really understands what the what the total supply situation looks like out there at the moment. It's a very opaque market in, in, in some ways, but um, not many people seem to know what's going on. I don't think anyone's got the answer. I don't think you know, you're not unique in, in, in that sense. Um, can we get back to, if you don't mind, the money that you've raised? And because you know, in your in your the press release came out, you're talking about strengthening the balance sheet, doing some exploration, and upgrading the DFS. Um, it, I want to ask the balance sheet that I get. You say right, we've reduced costs, but we need to keep the lights on. We need to keep this thing going until this macro story comes through, right? Um, exploration. Do you need to be spending money on exploration? Well, we have an obligation to spend some because you have, under the laws of the land, you've got um, you've got an obligation to spend money on the tenements. And I think I think in the territory it's about four hundred thousand a year, um, because we have mining leases at because we have mining leases at um, up at uh, Moga Rock, uh, and it's a good thing we do because uh, if we didn't have mining leases uh, at Moga Rock, we wouldn't be progressing our project under the current state government. So because we had the mining leases granted state government um, were allowed to progress so those are expensive the rents the rents and rates we pay um, I can't remember the number it's well over two million dollars a year in rents and rates and various government charges for the tenement holdings Wow Wow yeah so we pay that to the local council and to the to the state fortunately we um, we were given uh, relief from expenditure on those mining leases which would be significant um, so we're not spending any money at Mulga Rock um, with respect to Alligator River, do you need to explore? Well, no one needs to explore. But if you want to develop new deposits and you want to, you know, you want to be a mining company, then yes, you do need to explore. Alligator River is interesting because when we talk to utilities, one of the things they really like about Pimi is that we're not just a single mine company. We actually have a, 
We actually have a pipeline of projects. And what they want to see, uh, you know, you would have seen that one of the reactors in America was just licensed for 80 years. So these guys think on timelines much, much longer than junior miners normally do. And I'll give you a great example. So Scott Hyman used to work for Dominion Energy in America. He left them about uh, 15 years ago. He worked for Cameco for 13 years. He's been with us for two years. You know, when he goes and sees people at Dominion as a fuel seller now, he meets people he used to work with. So there are people working for Dominion Energy who have been working as fuel buyers longer than the lifetime of the Mulder Rock project. So these guys think on huge timeframes, right? If I tell them I've got a 15 year mine life, they're thinking, well, that's not long enough. We need to see a longer mine life. So you have to have a pipeline. And so to have a pipeline, you need to progress exploration. Now there's different types of exploration. There's you know, field, field work where you're doing mapping and sampling like we've done, termoteria sampling, or you can do you know, wide space drilling, that's the next level of expense, or you can do what's called a resource infill drilling. Now that's really expensive because you've got to drill a lot of holes to define your ore body. So we have all three options. The whole Alligator River area is quite large. It's 80 kilometers long. There's many, many targets that are at various stages. So next year, next year, our field season is very limited. It's only six months because of the weather. Um, the Angularly deposit, which needs infill drilling, this year probably isn't the year that we'll do it but we're going to have to hop to it in the next few years because that's going to take about five years to move into a mine. And let's assume that Mulder Rock's up and running by 23, you'd want Angularity coming on stream about three years later. So it is a balance, but next year, we're not going to be doing infill drilling at Angularity because that can burn through a lot of cash. We've got some great targets at Southern Flank that you, we, you would have seen the announcement on the Termoterra sampling. Um, and then we've got, uh, there's a 20 long, 20 kilometer long corridor between Sichuan and Angularly where we've got some fantastic structures that we need to do some surface mapping and surface geochem so we can define some drill targets. So, so, but so, yeah, you need to keep the other problem. The other problem you run, you run into is you have, um, you have IP in a company, you have geologists who work for you, who've worked on projects for a long time, who understand the geology. When you stop working, you run the risk of losing those people. And that is IP you never get back. So you have to, you have this balancing act, right? And so that's me being, a, I'm a development geologist. So, um, you know, I'm not an exploration geologist by any means. But one thing I do know about exploration geos is, is that IP that they have, they can write all the reports you like. But if they get bored and want to go work somewhere else, you've lost them and you've lost that IP. So there's this whole balancing act you've got to, You've got the human element of it. You've got your shareholders. Of course, you don't want to be wasting money. You don't want to go drill just for the sake of drilling. Um, but on the other hand, you are an exploration development company, so you have to you have to you know stay true to your to your vision and, and what you you raise on detra if you like. Right. So, so who, who do you think came out on top in terms of of that balancing act? Because you've raised a bunch of money, you know, uh, quite a, quite a chunk uh, of, of cash. You've got to work out how you spend that and when you think that's going to take you through to I guess you're hoping for price discovery this this year and, and maybe we'll talk about maybe some of Scott's insights in a second but um, when you were raising that when you decided we need to raise some money why why did you pick that number you know could you have raised a lot less could you have raised more you know well we were limited by our placement capacity on how much we could raise so we went to the maximum that we could raise you, did. you raise less you just end up coming back to market so what we want to do is we really want to try and stay out of the market as long as we can. So what does that tell us? Um, 
Well, that tells us that we're not going to be doing infill drilling at Angular Island because right. that's going to burn through cash too quickly. Okay. So we're going to be very balanced. Now, the other thing we need to work on, which actually is a cheap option, which does have a lot of value uplift, is looking at the definitive feasibility study. It'll be two years old um, when it comes uh, this January. So it'll have been two years since we released it. Um, and so we need to just make sure that the assumptions in that are correct. The mining methods won't change because those we spent a lot of time, effort, and money on that. Um, what has changed is how much people cost, uh, manning levels and things like that. So that's something we need to look at and that can be done very cheaply. The other thing we want to do is try and get the capital down. And one of the big low hanging fruits for that is, do we move from owner operate on the equipment across the contract mining? And if we do, we want to try and mitigate, we want to try and somehow um, minimize the, 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 the cost that the, of course, the earth moving contracts are going to want for his profit. So there's, you know, some juggling we need to do, but those are cheap options. Those are things that aren't going to cost much money except for time and effort. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they don't seem like, like ma major works to me. And so with the money- Oh, but right, they're important. No, I get, I get they're, they're I get they're important, but they're kind of like, po they're polishing while you're waiting, while you're, you know, walking circles around the room trying to no, see I'd, what's I'd happening. No, I'd say, no, I don't, I don't agree. I think, I think they're more important than that. I think, you know, if we if we see the price discovery, I think we'll see next year and we're writing contracts and we're moving down towards getting into um, funding, we need to have those numbers set in stone. So we can't be faffing around with, you know, do we do contract mining or do we own or operate six months from now? We need to have those answers in six months. So these, these are important considerations because the one thing about having a DFS out in the market for a, a length of time and you get feedback. And one of the bits of feedback we get is oh, the capital is a bit high. And, you know, so we have to look at ways of reducing our capital without having a, having it slam our OPEX. So those are things that we need to look at and they are important, but they're, they're actually relatively cheap because you're using consultants time. Um, we're not certainly not going to be on site drilling and, you know, digging holes again. So those are, those are real value adds that we can do for not much. So do you think on the current DFS, you don't think you could get funded? Well, if we were writing contracts at fifty-five dollars, we could for sure. Right. Okay. Well, no, then, no, that's, seriously. Yeah. Well, seriously, then, that's the number that we we've got out in the market, right? Right. That's the number we've got out there as our incentive price. We used the sixty-dollar price for the DFS. Now, it's a no-brainer that if you can reduce your debt load, you can reduce you know what you charge for contracts. And we've spent a lot of time and effort on this. We've done a lot of modeling on. Okay. Well, let's look at the balance between opex and capex because. You know, if, if you can reduce your capex and reduce your debt load, then that, that just means that you have less debt to repay and you can, you can actually offer cheaper contracts. And we've done a lot of work on that. So, you know, it's pretty important. Yeah, it's pretty important. But, it, you know, it's in the land of what ifs, you know, it, it, you know if, we get, if, if price discovery doesn't happen quickly. Well, let's talk about that. So spot price is where it is today. Oh, but you have to, sorry to interrupt, sure. sorry to interrupt, but you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to act like it will. So you can't be reactor, re reactionary, right? And that's that goes to one of your other questions, and, and it was something we talked about a long time ago. I think, um, you know, somebody in the states said to me, "Why don't you just put on, just put your pencils down and wait for the market to recover?" And I said to him, "Well, the trick is to know how many pencils to put down, because you put them all down, when the market turns, you're gonna be looking around for your pencils, and they're not gonna be there." Right. So we found it. I think we found what's a good what is a good balance. Okay. But, you know, I don't want to be I don't want to be suddenly caught on the hop when the music stops and in the game of musical chairs and suddenly all the all the utilities are scrambling around to get contracts. And we're we're not ready for that. We have to be ready for that. 
Yeah, well, again, I think let, let's come on to that because let's talk about timing, but we'll come on to your strategy because that's really important in terms of where you think you fit in the, in, in the mix. And obviously with Scott's history of buying and selling, you're probably reasonably well informed on that. So, but on, on timing, it's coming up for Christmas. No one's going to do anything. It's eggnog season and um, people are a bit more relaxed. So, so what, what happens in January? You know, what happens next year? How, how quickly do you think this comes when it, you know, if it comes and when it comes, how quickly does it go? Well, I don't think it's a matter, it's not a matter of if. I mean, you can just look at the utilities running down their inventories. Well, right? so I mean, if for next year, it, the question can be if yeah. for next year, because we don't know what the inventory numbers are. No one seems to know what the inventory numbers are. So it's not a question of if it, it comes eventually, it's a question of if it comes next year. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm using the same crystal ball as everyone else, and it seems to be very, you know, out of batteries, more or less. I mean, we've all thought we all thought by this time the price would be around 30 and it's sitting hovering around 26. Right. So there's these sort of little little, I guess. I don't know you call it hurdles, I guess, hmm. as you go along. So I can't predict when it's going to happen. Right. But what I can do is I can predict that we'll be ready when it does happen, because the alternative isn't the alternative to me isn't acceptable. So the alternative is to do nothing, just get rid of everyone. You know, everyone goes home, works three days a week. We have two people in the office and then suddenly the market turns around and you go, Oh, uh, Marcel, can you come back to work for me? No, no, I've got another job now. You know, Xavier, can you come back to work? No, no, I'm working somewhere else. You know, so suddenly you're sitting there with this hollow shell and you can't do anything. No, I, I get it. We, we, we've, so, all, we've all been there, but let's come back to the market question. You, no one's got a sense of when this comes back, but with your conversations with Scott, what's he telling you as an ex-buyer and, and seller uh, for utilities? I mean, what, what does he know that we don't? Well, the problem you've got is that we're having confidential um, conversations with utilities and I'm reluctant to actually disclose. So that's But you are having conversations. You are having conversations. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they're yeah, giving and you what? Important. Insight as to, you know, how they behave, what their expectations are, anything oh, that's on a, timing? How they behave. So how they behave, uh, how they'll behave when they get back into the market. Um, we are doing, when RFPs come out, we're participating. So we're getting feedback on price discovery. Um, and all of those things, when you take all of those things together, and then you consider our strategy that should be telling you that the news we're getting from the utilities is confirming that we need to keep going forward with our strategy, if that makes sense. That's about as far as I can really go, you know, because <laughs> so I, Scott's giving me a bunch of news from the utilities and we're just getting more and more ready. So, right. you know. Okay. Yeah. So, so that does tell us something. You're telling me it tells me something. So that's good. Um, so let's talk. I'll, how does it go? I'll I'll imply you infer. <laughs> let's let's agree to do that. Uh, so let's talk about that strategy a bit. So you are getting, you've got this balancing act of how you spend and apportion money, the money that you've got. At the current run rate, at the current run rate, without anything changing, you've got enough cash to take you through to the end of next year, assuming nothing changes. Uh, probably a little bit less. Um probably into certainly the end of the financial year, uh, into the second half of calendar year. Right. If nothing changes. If nothing changes, okay. But if something does change, then you go to the market, you're going to go to the market, presumably a higher 
share you would price. only go and on bet you would go to the better yes you would go to the market earlier on a better share price yeah. for sure okay appreciate appreciate that's all you can all you can say on, on, on that can we just talk about um working group it, it kind of follows on from the scott conversation working group you did make a couple of predictions when we spoke a couple of times ago a couple of interviews ago as to the tinkering that would happen but no real sort of meaningful outputs i mean has your view changed i mean from what you've seen or what we haven't seen from the working group i mean a couple of leaks but nothing concrete no and the leaks were about um i think dod or doe buying uranium from the domestic domestic miners and that was always what we believed was going to be one of the recommendations there may be some tax relief um certainly uh, I don't know what the scope, what I do know is I think the working group went to the government with about 60 recommendations where it told to go away and narrow down the list. Um, that was one of the things that one of some of the feedback we got. Okay. Um, the other thing is it, it seems to have just, they'll present it to the White House and the White House has no time limit to accept or release the results. So these leaks are actually quite useful. Um, but it, Everything we've seen leak-wise has been pretty much in line with what we thought and what we've said in the past is that it will it will be tinkered. There's not going to be any tariffs. It's not going to be any quotas. Um, so I think you know people. Uh, it does cause uncertainty with some investors, but I think the utilities have moved beyond. Uh, the utilities certainly don't talk about the fuel working group like they did about the section two thirty two. So that was a that had a really profound effect on their actions. But the nuclear fuel working group now. Um, they just see that as tinkering and, and there's nobody talking about grandfathering contracts and all of the, the, the concerns that they had the 232 when that was out there in line. Okay, so this is going to come back to market dynamics, supply demand, fundamentals. Yeah. We're not, it's not going to yeah. be about policies or, or tariffs and so forth. This is how, how much do we need? When do we need to pull, pull the trigger? Uh, and yeah. Yeah. Okay. That that makes that makes now sense to me because why you know for buyers why would you not continue to buy as cheaply as possible for as long as possible up until the threshold which you've defined it makes nothing more than sense to me. Well, the threshold is is getting uranium. The one thing that I've learned from Scott is that you've got you you've got three three competing forces in in the in the utility you've basically got the cfo who manages cash flows and he has other concerns right so he's you know he's got turbine blades to replace and seals to, you know so he's got to put his capital somewhere else um the cno the chief nuclear officer whose one and only rule is thou shalt not run out of fuel and then you've got the risk lawyers and they're the guys who are sort of balancing okay how are our, you know what's the market look like you know what are our inventories like and what's really interesting is there's a lot of there's a lot more headwinds now than there used to be. So you've got the Russian suspension agreement, which comes up at the end of 2020, which limits how much uranium can come in and, and product can come in from EUP can come in from Russia. You've got the Iranian waivers, which are now suddenly bubbled to the top. You know, and the Iranians, you've got you know they decide to give them another 90 days, and two days after the American make that announcement on, on October 30th, they decide to start enriching uranium again. So you know that that if those waivers go away, then anyone dealing with Iran's nuclear program is at risk of being, um, having, uh, 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 basically being barred from trading with America. So that's a real concern for the Americans, right? So, but not Europe. And these are just uncertainties. Not probably not so much. No, I don't know. No, I don't, I don't know what the Europeans are going to do. If, 
But they don't have they don't have a waiver, an Iranian waiver. No, no, but that's that's my point. Is like the, the, the Americans are unilaterally coming up with uh, the, their own view, and the EU fundamentally disagrees with the way that this the whole Iranian play is unfolding in front of us. So, again, more confusion, more uncertainty. Well, that's true, but America's, you know, I think it's 28% of the market. So it's certainly our bit, it's certainly the customer we're concentrating on. So, you know, the EU is dominated by EDF and the EDF fuel buyers have said that they'll only buy from existing producers. So that leaves us out until the second, next round of negotiations. So we concentrate on the US market. That's the market that we're interested in. And that's the market that, you know, they're, they're the guys that, that we watch and their reaction to the Iranian waivers is really important to us. What else has Scott um, given you insight into in terms of, you know, when utilities start making decisions? Is, I mean, is January a time of year where things happen? I mean, I've heard that, that typically yeah, January is yeah. when so, off, so. so Scotty said basically what happens is very few companies will, um, during, during um uh, December and during the holidays, very few companies, utilities will put out RFPs. Remember what I said earlier, they think on long time frames. So, mm. you know, waiting until January to put out an RFP for fuel is, is fine. They're not in, they're not in a hurry. Um, there have been exceptions to that rule. Scott said once they had to do an RFP between Christmas and New Year's and, you know, they were all highly annoyed that they had to do that. There's a one day NEI conference in Washington in January. I think it's in mid January. And that's kind of the starting gun for the new year. Um, and Scott said that's always been the case. So everyone, you know, they drop the eggnog, they head to Washington, they all get back together. January and February, um, Scotty said, are months that they, they are buying fuel. Um, they've, a lot of reactors have just come down through outages, what they call our outages or refueling. Um, so that's all done. Some of the smaller, some of the smaller teams, you know, they, it's all hands on deck. So they might be part of the fuel buying department, but they're also, um, nuclear scientists are involved with the outages, which I always find a funny name. It's got a negative connotation. It should be, you know, rebirth or something. We're refueling the reactor for the, you know, the next next year or two. Um, uh, but something else Scott said uh, in our meetings with utilities that I hadn't really thought about was while the U.S. aren't building new reactors at a breakneck pace, I think there's two under construction at the moment. Um, one thing they have done is they've increased their capacity factor quite a lot and the capacity factor has gone up significantly. And that's, you know, that while that's not um, a huge amount of growth, it's still a positive sign for the industry. And then if you take that in conjunction with, you know, where the WNA's growth rate is of 2%, it's, you know, it's, it's getting a little bit healthier than it, it has been in the past. And one thing we're seeing is, you know, we've got COP25 going on now um, in Europe and we've got there, there are pro-nuclear groups actually speaking at it this time, whereas um, the last one they had in Poland, I think the, the nuclear lobby was still frozen out. You had the European Parliament voting in favor of you know, nuclear power as a way of mitigating climate change. So there's an interesting sea change happening around the world. And, you, you know, you read the news as much as I do. Um, there is this there is this overwhelming consensus that there's a climate emergency and we have to do something about it and nuclear is starting to, to nuclear is certainly starting to be part of that yeah for sure for sure i think that the, the, mac, the macro story is being better understood and better told 
uh, for sure. Let's let, let's just finish off with uh, for your your hopes for this year for Vimy. I mean, what would you say to new investors looking at Vimy? You know, where, where do you sit in the market? Why should they be coming in now? Okay. Uh, well, let me get my where's my nuclear fuel report is somewhere. You know, Julian has come and board it. Right. So when you when you look at the market uh, right now, there's far less uranium being produced than there is being burnt in a given year. I think the numbers are 125 being produced and about 178 being burned, something of that order. Now, a lot of the utilities are running down um, stockpiles and inventories. Uh, but what's happened is because of the, the prolonged low price caused by overproduction out of Kazakhstan, mm. um, basically you've had mines close and you importantly, you haven't had a lot of new mines being developed. And that's really where I think Vimy sets itself aside with a very small select group of, of guys like the bosses of the world where we've just kind of quietly kept our projects moving forward. And when you look at the WNA report, they have a couple of categories. Um, and that was one of the things we talked about how important this year's report was, was they actually started to break down some of the production. Um, and one of the things is planned mines. And planned mines are basically mines that are done at EFS um, or a PFS and are, are basically ready to move forward. And there's only, I think, six of those in the world. There's four under development at the moment, the six planned mines, and then there's a group of prospective mines, um, and Angularity comes into that group. And then you've got the the, um, the next low category down, which is the, what they call the reserve mines, which is the ones that are on the bench. And they, they could come on at some point in the future with better prices or, or more studies. So when you look at when you look at if there is if there is a supply shock and suddenly we need to turn on more supply, if and I don't think it's an if, but I think Cameco and 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 Kazad and Prom will maintain their supply discipline. They don't want to see the price plummet again. They both said that they both want to see sustainably high prices. You're still going to have to have new production if you've got growth and you've got mines closing because they're running out of resources. So when you look around and you say, well, who are going to be the next generation of miners? And this is the same as any commodity, whether it's nickel, copper, gold, it doesn't matter. Mines run out of ore. They are not, they are finite resources. And what happens is as mines close down, you need new ones coming on. And there's not very many new ones out there. And when you look at the supply curve going forward, there aren't a lot of new planned mines and we're one of them. So, you know, we're in that sweet spot where Let's say next year goes well. Let's say we're writing contracts and by the end of the year, we're looking at funding. And by early 21, we're getting into construction. And then 23, we come into production. And when you look at anyone's predictions by 23, what the price is going to be, it doesn't matter who you look at. By 23, the prices have to be significantly higher than they are today, or you're just going to, you're just not going to have your annual. People look at today's spot price, which is $25, just under $26. And for some reason, they think that's the price going forward forever. And it just isn't, you know, and we're, we're, as I said before, we are entering into RFPs. We know where our price expectations are, right? So we're, we're not out of the ballpark. If we were, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. Okay. You see, so when you look at 23 and 24, 23 being first production, what's the price we're going to get then it's not what is the price today it's what's the price in three years that's the important thing and, and the feedback we're getting is our price expectation is not unrealistic okay and i guess the the trick that you know you need to master is being able to 
show people that you're going to be able to get from here to 2023 fully you know fully funded into production selling into the market with your contracts and so forth without affecting the share price negatively so you know they've got to be able to look at and work out what's the timing what's the best timing to come in and join the party with you know vimy resources when would you say that timing is about a week ago (laughs) right (laughs) no no i think look no seriously i think um i don't like doing dilutive raises i'm a shareholder I, i bought shares years ago when we when we first joined the company we bought a share a bunch of shares from the founder you know and we've had we've had um shares as part of our rim who, who they've basically fallen away because the the share price hasn't been sustained. you know i'm as i'm as unhappy as anyone with the share price being where it is you know especially when you look at our peers on a comparative basis so that's even more frustrating so you know i have to work hard at at keeping the story out there we've got a conference this week down here in perth um called the new world metals conference which is you know battery metals and uranium and things like that um we just have to keep we just have to keep in front of people and 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 keep telling them the message and keep keep on message and you know we want to make sure that the raise we've just done lasts we need to be as smart as we've been with our money to make sure we're not popping into the market again early next year because if we do that again the share price will fall again and people get diluted so we need to be you know, what you want, the perfect world is, okay, we see the recovery, the share price recovers, and then the next time we need to raise some money, it's not as dilutive. We're not, we're not, you know, raising our full 15%. We're raising far less because the share price is you know, okay. around 10 cents. So, you know, that's how you run these companies. You know, I've done this before. I ran an iron company. I've been associated with gold companies. Um, you know, it, and it's a hard balancing act. Sometimes people end up with 3 billion shares on issue because they just keep putting out these small raises. Um, and sometimes they're raising something like 150 grand because all they're doing is they've got a small service, you know, office and they just have to keep paying, paying to keep the company public until there's better times. But, you know, we want to avoid that cycle. We want to try and really, you know, be doing something to benefit the projects, but also watching our cash. And it's a, it is a balancing act. It is for sure, Mike. Um, thanks very much for that update. Let's, I hope it goes well over the next couple of quarters. Uh, we'll see what the, you know, if there's price discovery in the market, because I think that's got to be, that's the biggest mover of the dial for you guys. Um, oh, it is a contract. A contract is, is you know, that's, that'll be, uh, that'll be seriously life-changing for everyone. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's what everyone's waiting for. And, and as I said before, you know, we, we do enough work inside the contract market by being participants to know exactly where we sit. And this is, this is one of the things that frustrates me about, about the consensus forecasts. And, you know, we saw Mike Alkins talk at, at Nashville is that it doesn't paint the whole picture. It does not paint the whole picture. And so unfortunately, you know, Mike's out there trying to tell the message, but unfortunately, there's only two consensus views in this market and it's not it's not relaying the information that we get by having a guy like Scott working for us. I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, well like, stay in touch. Good luck over the next couple of quarters. Let's speak let's speak in the new year and uh, hopefully it's I'd like positive that. news. <laughs> Look, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it would be right. So uh, you know I 
there's a lot of opportunities pop up and bubble up and you know but i really believe in this space i love the space and i really believe in what we're doing i mean you know i could go draw a check somewhere else i could do gold i could do nickel you know it's it's but i really believe in this project i believe in a team and 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 i really believe in the uranium space and i've been in it long enough to see you know the fundamentals of it you know i'm not i'm not delusional by any means um it'd be a whole lot easier running a gold company but i just think i just think the but i really think you know when you look at leverage gold is pretty much you know it's not gonna it's not gonna double in price right so gold is is a yield play now whereas uranium is a good leverage play and anyone coming in looking around going what commodity have i got the best leverage on well we all know it's uranium but you got to be a long so hopefully, hopefully next year's Christmas present will be much better than this year's. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.